Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in prayer in the name of Jesus. And God, we thank you so much for the worship that we've experienced already this morning. And God, as we come, we know this is a special time in the life of our church and also in the life of five men who are being ordained to the ministry of the deacon. And so, Lord, I pray that we as a church would embrace them today. This will be a, a great time for our church to be reminded not just what a deacon is, but the heart of a servant leader. And God, I pray that you would challenge each and every one of us here uh, today. And Lord, as we meet together, I pray for the needs of everyone here, but especially those that um, need to be called out to um, a leadership role in the body of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, please be seated. We want to take our Bibles this morning. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 10. As we do that, we find in a passage of the Bible something that God, that Jesus talks about that's so important as he prepares for the cross. And the, what he's uh, really referring to here is the fact that he's going to pass the baton off to the next generation of leaders, his disciples. And we're going to look and see what that really is all about, see what that means. Now, today, uh, this morning, at the end of the service, toward the end, we're going to be ordaining five men to the deacon ministry. And normally we do this maybe in the afternoon, the evening service, but it's important that every once in a while, maybe from now on, but certainly it's important for you as a church to realize who's leading out in ministry here in the church and be a part of a very special time in the life of five men. And so as we're looking at this, we're looking at the deacon ministry, but, you know, all of us lead. Every single person here has a potential of leading something. You may be leading out in your work, leading out in your business, leading out in school. You have an opportunity to do that at least. You lead in church, or perhaps uh, you have a leadership role, of course, in the family. And whether you're mom or dad or an older brother, older sister, there's something about leading out and influencing the lives of others. People have said that leadership is simply influence. You influence people, a certain group of people or a person, to follow you. But what does Jesus teach about leadership? Because as we open up this passage, we find that Jesus is predicting his death, burial, and resurrection. So notice what's happening here with the disciples. Very insightful thing that's about to take place. Jesus is talking about this, and then in verse 34 it says, They will mock him, talking about himself, the Son of Man, and spit on him and scourge him, just what happened to him on the cross, and kill him. And three days later he will arise again. Now you can imagine. Here were a group of men who were expecting with all their, their, their followership of Jesus, for him to, to suddenly overthrow the Roman Empire and become king of Israel. And so for them to hear about the death, death and resurrection of Christ and all these mysteries that he's talking about, you can imagine what's going through their mind. Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? What's gonna, how do they respond? How do they respond? Look at this passage, verse 35. James and John, now John was the writer of the Gospel of John, first the three epistles of John and the book of Revelation. So he was, he was a big guy in all this. He says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Well, now I just told you about my resurrection, my death and resurrection. He says, so what do you want me to do for you? 
Verse 37, they said to him, Grant that we may sit on your right hand and on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Are you willing to go through what I'm willing to go through, what, what I have to go through to follow me? Now, here was the thing, though. You can imagine there you are with these other disciples, and maybe you're not one of the most outspoken ones, and you're sitting off to the side, and you're thinking, what, he's going to die? He's going to be resurrected? And James and John suddenly, with their own agenda, come up to Jesus. Okay, oh, Jesus, that's all fine for you, but do something for us. You know, man, I mean, it just, did it just go right by them? But they were looking and saying, hey, look, we want to rule. We want to rule. Now, why did they really want to do this? Why was this not a good question for them to ask? Because we read on. But he says, to sit on my right hand or the left, there's not mine to give, but it's for those whom you have, he has prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Man, what are you trying to get, get ahead of us here? Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. That's the reason they wanted to be rulers. And their great men exercise great authority over them. But is not this way among you? Then, okay, how is it among you? What is it to be a Christian leader? I want us to see what Jesus said a leader was all about. And then secondly, how do we lead? Thirdly, who is the leader? And finally, why lead? And you're going to find out that's a good question at the end of the message. First of all, what is a leader. Notice what it says here in verse 2042, rather. It says, the, the rulers of the Gentiles. Then in verse 43, but whoever wishes to become great among you. Now, in the context of this, Jesus was saying, look, I'm playing off the word ruler, and the rulers were great. And so, if you want to be a great ruler, he says, you be the servant of all. Now, notice it says in verse 42, they lord it over them. Now, I know that you and I interpreted that uh, off the cuff by saying, well, here's a person that is a leader, and he keeps throwing it in your face. Hey, I'm, I'm the leader of this home, or I'm the leader of this church, or I'm the leader of this business, and you do what I tell you to do. That's really not the gist of it, even though that's part of it. The gist of it is this. When you lord it over people, what you're doing is saying, to yourself, I need people to rule and to lead in order to take advantage of, the, in order to rule things for my advantage. All right, that's what it's saying. To lord it over someone is leading in your home, in your church, at your business, in order for it to benefit you. And he said, that's the way the world does it, the Gentile world. And so the disciples were thinking, James and John were thinking, yes, we want to lord it over people. We want to, everyone to serve us. We want to be able to get our way in things. And Jesus said, not so with the Christian leader. In fact, there's three words that really describe in the Bible leadership in the church, and I think also in the home. Three words, shepherd, steward, slave. Three things, shepherd, steward, slave. First of all, in the Bible, we talk about shepherds. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the great shepherd. He said uh, in First and Second Timothy and Titus, it talks about the church and the hierarchy of the church and the offices of the church. It's talking about being uh, a shepherd, caring for the flock. Easy for everybody to get that. You know that. And so what's the second word? The second word in the Bible is steward. Now, when we think about stewardship, 
we often think about money. And that's all we think about. Well, stewardship, that's code word for giving money. But actually, stewardship, a steward was a person who worked for a manager or worked for an owner, and he managed the, uh, the property of the owner. Now, the significant thing is this. The stewards, by the way, Paul said, be a, you know, all good stewards are required of a steward to be found trustworthy and faithful. And so it's all throughout the Bible, stewardship, 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 because really what God is saying is this. You have certain gifts, certain talents, money. You have the gospel message. You have your family. You have all these things wrapped up. And this is what I have given you in your responsibility. And you're responsible for those things. And the judgment seat of Christ, when you and I as Christians meet before the the judgment and the evaluation of Christ, we're going to be evaluated not on our salvation. That's something that's in the past because Jesus has already died for us. And so you think, well, if, if I'm not going to be judged for my sins, what am I going to be judged for in the last days? Well, the Bible says your stewardship. Basically, here's what I've given you to do. Now, what did you, how, what did you accomplish with that? Which gives us the real meaning to stewardship, or rather the, the, the meaningfulness behind it. And that is a steward is responsible for the wealth, back in that day, the estate of the owner. He was to take his lead from the owner. He was accountable to the owner. And also, he was expected to multiply the resources of the owner. There's a parable in Matthew chapter 25. A parable is simply a, an illustration that has one point. It's a story that Jesus tells, a fictitious uh, type of story to make a point. And in this parable, he says um, an owner goes off on a long trip, and the first thing he does is say, okay, I'm going to give this, this steward five talents, meaning money, this one two, and this one one. Now, the one with five talents, when he came back, had multiplied it to ten. The one with two talents had multiplied it to four, doubled it. The one with one talent, the Bible says, buried the talent. And then blamed it on the master by saying, well, I know you're a hard taskmaster, master. You're hard to please, and therefore I just buried it so I wouldn't lose it. Now, he commended the first two guys. But the owner rebuked the one who did not multiply the resources. And so when we're talking about ministry, when we're talking about being a servant of God, we're talking about being responsible. So a Christian leader is a steward responsible for growing God's resources that have been assigned to him. Maybe your family. You're a leader of your family. You're, you're uh, commissioned to multiply and grow those resources that God has given you, that young son, that young daughter, to grow them up in the Lord. That's our responsibility as parents. Our responsibility as a deacon is to manage the resources in that uh, small group class to multiply those resources, to grow those resources. It's the same way with the pastor. But here's the difference. The Gentile or the person that's out in the world back in this biblical time would lord it over others. I'm the ruler now, and now you're going to serve me and benefit me. The Christian leader takes or leverages his authority to benefit those under his authority. He leverages not things and people in order to benefit him, but to benefit the people that he is serving. That's what Jesus did. That's what the apostles did. And that's what a good pastor does. That's what a good deacon does. 
And all of us are called to lead somewhere along the line in our life in order to do just that. So we've got the word, we've got the word steward. Before that, we have the word what? Somebody tell me. Shepherd. We have shepherd, steward, and now the word slave. Hard word to take. But notice in this passage, there are two words for service. One is found in verse 43, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. This is the word in the original language, diakonos, which where we get our word deacon. That's where it comes from. And it means to voluntarily serve. It literally means a servant who kicks up the dust. In other words, they make, all of a sudden they start so fast, their feet kicks up dust because they're anxious, they're, they're wanting to serve and meet the needs of other people. This is a voluntary thing. So we're ordaining five men and we're recognizing others that are called to a service that is voluntary on their part. And the spirit of the deacon says, I'm anxious to serve. But I want you to notice the second word here in verse 44. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. This word is doulos. It comes from the word literally meaning the slave, like a slave market. Paul says, I'm a slave of God. Um, Peter says, I'm a slave of the Lord. James, his brother, Jesus' brother, says, I'm a slave of my, my earthly brother, Jesus Christ. All throughout the Bible, people call themselves slaves of God. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, I had a chance to, to meet him to be a, a, in his home not too long before his death. And he, tell, he tells a story of him and uh, his wife being a very young Christians, kneeling beside their bedside one night and asking God to help them and surrendering their life. And says, Lord, we are slaves of you. We want to just do you good. I'm your slave. Every morning, Bill Bright said, I'm getting up in the morning and saying, I, God, I'm, I'm your slave. I'm just simply here to do your bidding. Now, we are uncomfortable with that term slave. I understand that. Because when we think about slaves, we think about uh, people in the last couple of centuries ago. We think about kidnapping from another country like Africa and bringing them over and enslaving somebody for a lifetime to do our bidding, not to do them good, but to do us good. And that's what happened in American slavery and English slavery over in Great Britain as well. And so that's our context for it. But in the Roman Empire, there are more slaves than there were free people in the Roman Empire because slaves were not in the same context, the same way that we think about slaves. In fact, most slaves drew a salary. Very few slaves ever served for a lifetime. What they would do, they would sell themselves into slavery, make money, they would live for free, make money in order to pay off a debt, or they would make money in order to save for something in the future. And many of them would, of course, all, they would buy themselves eventually out of the slave market, out of slavery. And so here we find this. We find a person that says, look, I'm a, I'm a slave of this master. I've bought in totally. I can't quit. I can't just drop out. I, I've got to dedicate myself to taking the resources that he trusts me with and multiplying them in my life. So we find two words, servant, which means, hey, that's the action. That's the action I'm taking, a voluntary action. And a slave is the heart of the leader himself. And so as we look at this, we look at Jesus. Look in verse, uh, in verse uh, 44. And whoever wishes to become first among you shall be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man, talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word diakonos, which means, again, the voluntary service. He says, I've come to voluntarily serve you, and by that, I mean to voluntarily go to the cross and die there for your sins. I'm your example, but I'm also your rescuer. I'm also your savior. Now, where else in the Bible does it talk about Jesus being a servant? And where does the slave market thing come into, come into play? Philippians 2.7 Paul begins to talk about what Jesus did as he came from heaven. He said he emptied himself. Then taking on the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of men. Bond servant is this word doulos. Jesus was a slave for us. A Christian leader is then both a slave to God and a servant and, and sometimes a ruler, sometimes a leader to other people as well. That's what a steward was. Basically, a steward over a household was a slave in charge of other slaves. When you look at Christian ministry, you're looking at the slave involved in leading the other slaves, helping the other slaves, being a resource for other slaves, and helping them come to know Christ in a very much deeper way. And so that's what a Christian leader, according to the Bible, according to Jesus and his definition. So how do you lead? What, what do you look for in someone that is a leader? Well, first of all, he's got to be an owner. You've got to have a sense of ownership about what's going on. We've talked in the past about people that, three types of people in the church, a customer, and then an owner, and then an investor. Now, I know the word customer is um, not maybe the term more, more and more people use, and they use the word consumer, consumer versus a giver or an owner. But a customer says it a little bit better because I think that when you, it's like going into a restaurant. You're not a bad customer. You're not a bad consumer. You just go into a restaurant. You have no sense of ownership about it at all. I mean, in fact, you're, it's just a restaurant to you that you frequent. So you go in, and they, then they change the menu. And maybe your favorite dish is not on the menu. Or maybe they raise the prices a little bit, or they change something about the scenery. Uh, and, oh, it's just not like it used to be. I'm just going to leave. Why? I'll just go to another restaurant. Why? Because, well, you're a customer. People do that church that way as well. They come, they kind of kick the tires, and there's nothing wrong with being, of course, a customer when you first come because that's what you're looking for a place for your family, you're looking for a place for yourself. And so you begin to kick the tires a little bit. But then all of a sudden, maybe something happens where a staff member, like in our case, is not here the way it used to be. You know, like Herb, uh, Herb Mong, for example, retiring. And you think, well, it's just not the way it used to be. You know, and you're a customer, so what do you do? You just go look for another church. You know, things, aren't, things aren't the way they used to be or whatever, so I just go look for something else. That's not the kind of leader, the, the pool of people you want to pull a leader from because you need a sense of ownership. You need a sense that God has brought you here, he's called you here, and this is your church, not just their church, it's your church. And, of course, an investor means not only that, but you believe in the vision of the church and you're investing in it. And so you no longer become really a taker and what you, whatever you can get out of church, you become then a giver. And these men that are being ordained today are already givers. We're not asking them to suddenly be ordained and say, now we want you to change your ways. We want you to start coming to small group on a regular basis. We want you to start reading the Bible on a re regular basis. We want you to start walking with God. As a matter of fact, these guys are already doing that. You know, any other way is legalism. You understand that, right? 
If somebody says, well, okay, I don't read the Bible much, but I'll read it as long as I'm a deacon. And then once I'm not a deacon anymore, I won't read anymore. That is legalistic stuff. And I don't want any part of that. No, we're calling on men that already walk the walk. In fact, somebody might ask me, and they do ask me, how do I live the Christian life? Now, I, can, I know I can't disciple everybody. I mean, you know that. We can't. I mean, we have 5,000 people on the roll totally, including those that are dead, you know, that never get, no, I'm just kidding about that. You know, they're, they're, they're really gone. But um, we've got five, I can't do that, so what do I do? I, I turn around and say, well, you see that deacon over there? Yeah. You just follow him around, just do what he does, and you'll be good. I ought to be able to say that to every single Christian, about every Christian leader here. And so we look, and it's an owner. It's a, he's a learner. You, you stop learning you're eventually going to stop leading. But thirdly, a person that's a risk taker, a person willing to take risk. You see, life is filled with uncertainties. It just is. And the higher you go up in leadership, the more uncertain things really are. You say, well, I just can't, I, don't, I just don't know about the future. And, you know, I just don't know what it holds. Nobody does. Otherwise, you wouldn't need leadership. If you knew the future, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have a need for anyone to lead you. So there's uncertainty there and the complexity there as well. Uh, I remember a guy we used to have uh, on staff here several years ago. And I, um, he, he was a good staff member. In fact, of, among all the people uh, that's ever served, I don't think anyone has ever questioned about, ooh, why are we doing that? Wow, what about this? What about, because I could tell he was learning to be a pastor. That's what he was doing. And you can tell the people, the guys that come on staff that want a pastor who, or versus those who don't have that calling because the ones who want a pastor are always asking questions. So he asked all these questions, and he, he went out to pastor, and um, everything was good. <clears throat> but he called me back one day, and he said, I was talking to him, and he said, you know, when I left there, I thought I was ready. I thought I just knew what to do. But boy, I wasn't ready. Things are just so complex. You see, when you look from the outside in, you're looking and say, well, look, there's yes and no. Just make a simple. It's just simple. Just make a decision. No. When you're on the inside, you realize the complexity of things and how difficult it is to communicate things and how uncertain things are in the future. And you have to work within that uncertainty. But what about you? You work with the same uncertainty. And that's the reason we need risk takers. You say, what do you mean by risk? Well, what about your time? Every time you serve, you're risking your time. Well, I don't know what the future is going to hold. I, I would teach a small group. I know I'm qualified. I know I know the Bible well enough where I can teach, I can teach children. I, I'm good with children, but I'm not willing to do that because I don't know what my future is going to hold six months from now or three months from now. And so I don't know if I can really take that, that risk of my time and my energies and my effort. But those uncertainties, folks, never go away. They never, never, never go away. The complexity of life never goes away. You've got to be willing to step up and say, I'm willing to work and lead out of uncertainty. Well, we see how, what we need, but what about the characteristics real quickly? Verse 43, it says this, but it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great must become the servant. He must become the slave. What kind of attitude? The number one attitude of a slave or a servant, especially a voluntary servant. Somebody that it's not, 
I mean, they, they didn't buy in at one time, and therefore they, they just can't quit. We're talking about a servant. What is the basic quality? Well, Jim Collins, in one of his books, Level 5 Leadership, many of you know about Jim Collins. He wrote, you know, Good to Great, Great to Good, and, uh, you know, Pretty Good to Mediocre. I don't, I don't know, several different books that he wrote. Uh, kind of a leadership guru, surveys everything. I mean, everything. And he surveyed when, when uh, leaders, and this is mainly in the business world, but leaders, when they, when they stay a long time, uh, what is the characteristic? And he thought that it would be charisma. But the number one characteristic was humility. They had a genuine humility in their life. Notice what it says in verse 39. They said to him, we are able. Oh, no, they were not. They ran for their lives. There was a pride here. And the Bible tells us that pride goeth before a fall. Here's what it says, 1 Peter 5, 5, And all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It says in James 4, 10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. A humility of mind. And you say, well, how do I know I'm humble? You know, it's an old saying, you know, once you admit you're humble, you're not humble anymore. So how do you know? Two tests. One, how much do you pray? That's your dependence on God. And the second one is right here in this passage where Jesus said in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? That's the humility question. How can I help you? Now, I often ask the staff in a different way. I need to change my way I form things, I guess. I'm more of a direct person. What do you need me to do? What do you need? It's probably more polite and sweet, you know, some of you ladies out there to say, how may I help you? In fact, say that, help me out a little bit. How may I help you? You see, that's the humble question. How? Now, I, you're working for me, but how can I help you? And that's what Jesus, can you imagine the Son of God asking his disciples, how, what can I do for you? There's a humility here. And a humility says, I don't need recognition. Now, it's up to us to give recognition, but you don't need it. You're going to serve without the recognition. You're going to serve without the entitlement. Man, I'm a deacon now. I, I get my own parking place done. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor now. You know, I, I get gold-plated bulletins. You know, I don't know. You know, just some. And there, there's something going around the country as well. And, and basically it's saying, hey, if you've served... Um, really well as a layperson, unpaid, then you deserve to be promoted to paid staff. You see, the problem with that is that that's entitlement. And I've preached against that all of my life. You are not entitled. We're not entitled to anyway, anything. The slave, the slave simply says, I want to be a profitable servant. How can I be a profitable servant? The only way you can make a profit is to do more than what's required. A slave of God. I'm not entitled to anything. Fine, if you want to give me a shot, but I am not entitled to anything. And that's what we've preached on this staff for all these years. We're just not entitled. You say, Yo, well, Pastor, you got your own parking place. Well, that's just during the week because I have to come in and out. Before the, before the security people uh, asked me to do something different and park closer, I don't know, some of you know where the, um, uh, the elementary school is across the street. There's a teacher's lot behind that, and that's where many of the staff parked back just until a few years ago. Furthest away we could possibly get. 
And yes, there was only one tree there, and I had to race Barry Edwards every single Sunday. <clears throat> I started to put a little place there and said, this is my, no, I'm not going to do it. Tenacious. Slaves can't quit. You say, yes, slaves shouldn't quit. You know, I shouldn't quit. No, no. Slaves were not allowed to quit. Once you committed on, once you signed on, you could not quit. Thirdly, free. We want people that are free. Free from the addictions of life, free from sin, and free in Christ. You see, you always give yourself to something. Nobody's really totally, what you call, free but when you give your heart to Christ, when you're a slave of Christ, he's the only one that you can commit your life to that will not come back to hurt you. And then finally, you need to realize you're often unappreciated. I was talking to one pastor not too long ago, and he says, man, I didn't know when I was called to the pastorate, I'd be hated by everybody, <laughs> you know? And sometimes that's true. You, you don't see the complexity of things. Another guy told me, he said, yeah, you know, my problem was is that I had people I led to Christ that betrayed me. Why did they do that? Because they had other friends that were influencing them that did not understand the complexities of decisions that needed to be made. It was just simple. Why didn't you just do this? You know, I, I didn't like it on this. And you just go back and forth. Unappreciated. And no matter how much you may help, some of these deacons, you're going to help and help and help and help and help. And the moment you're going to have to say, I can't help you on this one immediately. Somebody's going to turn, turn their back on you. Why? Because as Jesus hung on the cross, many people did not appreciate him either. You have to live sometimes in unappreciation. You said, then why in the world should you do it? Pastor, you're talking about being a slave. You're talking about being a servant. Boy, I like the leadership where everybody, you're lording over everybody. And it's just an advantage for you. If it's not going to be an advantage for you to serve, then why do it? Well, let's look at verse 45, and it says, For the, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus set the example. He came to serve. He had the actions of a servant. He saw the need, and the need was, is that you and I were not worshipers of God. We did not have a relationship with God. We were, we were bound for hell. We were bound to pay for our own sins, and he came and open the door for us. The Bible teaches there was no door to heaven. There was no door to worship God. There was no door to have a relationship with the Father and to call him Father. Jesus made the door, John 10. He became the door to heaven. He became the door to having this relationship with God. How did he do that? He died on the cross. And if there had been any other way for you and I to have that kind of relationship with God, do you think the Father would have sent his son to die on the cross for our sins for nothing? He said, yeah, just to prove his love. Are you kidding me? Think about that for just a moment. How dumb do you think God is? He said, well, you shouldn't even ask that question. Oh, no, I should. Because I tell you, if your house was burning down, and I'll say, I'm going to show you how much I love you, and I ran in the house, and I died in the house, and you think, well, I already told him there was nobody in the house. There wasn't even a dog and a cat in the house. There was no reason for him to go in and get burned and, and, and die. Man, what a, I mean, that was nice of him to do, but it was sort of, that was dumb. 
But on the other hand, you're crying, you say, and you're blowing out smoke out of your lungs, and you say, my child, my child, my baby's still in the house. Then you run in the house because you have a reason. And then you come out with the baby, and even though you die yourself right there on the lawn, the baby has been saved. Then you become a hero. Then you become a rescuer. Then you become a savior in that sense. Jesus came and died on the cross because we needed him to. Because he was the only way in which you and I could have that relationship with God. He set the stage for us to be those servants. As he passes this along to us, we know that our leadership matures us in Christ. When we lead, it matures us. It makes us better. We know that we, boy, if we quit, it's, it's going to hurt so many people. You can't quit. And it is impactful. Impactful. You can make, yes, there is more tension in leadership. Yes, there is more ambiguity in leadership. There's lack of clarity in life. Yes, yes, there is that, that situation in life where there's uncertainty and the responsibility on you as a leader, even in the home, is tremendous. But no one can make the impact that you can make as that leader. The question is, when you think about the foundation of Jesus Christ versus no foundation at all, the Bible says, hey, you're on this foundation of Christ. The winds of life are going to come. The storms are going to come. The indecision's going to come. But your life's going to stand because it's founded upon a rock. Versus the person, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about it, a man who builds his house upon the sand. The same storms come. The same junk hits his life. Great is the fall of that house because it has no foundation. For you and I to lead, to benefit the lives of others, including our own children, our lives need to be standing upon that foundation of Jesus Christ. So I ask you today, do you know Jesus lives in your heart? Do you know that? Do you know as you're called to be a leader, you're saying, God, I'm willing to be your slave. I'm willing to do it. Let's pray together. In the quietness of this moment, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Jesus into your heart, I'll ask you to pray this prayer with me right now, silently as I pray aloud. If you mean the prayer, Jesus will come to live inside your heart. It goes like this, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for my sins. I open up the door of my heart. I ask you to come in. Please forgive me of everything that I've done. Make me the person that you want me to be. Make me your servant. In Jesus' name, now for every Christian here, would you just, just say to God, God, I am your slave today. I want to be just your slave. Slave for the Lord Jesus and a slave for the salvation of people, the rescuing of people, the discipling of people, the helping the ministry of people. Lord, help me to be that steward, shepherd, slave. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this time, we are going to uh, go into a time of uh, <clears throat> ordination. And uh, I want to call your attention to the screens here in just a second. Because as we look at these testimonies, these are the men who are going to be ordained this morning. And then there are going to be four others, I believe, up there that are new to our church. They've been ordained before but they've never served in our church. So let's roll that video right now. You're going to really be blessed by, by what you're about to see. 